Welcome to the Eastman Dental Podcast, where we hope to inspire, motivate and provide education from our guests' experience. So Josh, who's coming on our podcast this week? Because this week we're joined by Shravan Tawari, who talks about the ORE and PLVE. Shravan undertook his undergraduate dental training in Manipal in India, graduating in 2016. Upon graduating, he moved back to the UK and successfully passed the overseas registration exam, registered with the General Dental Council and began to practice in the UK. I mean, I still remember walking around in the surgery department in third year and just casually strolling by a guy in a ward with his entire side missing from a shark. I mean, that's the kind of <laughs> exposure you just don't get. In this episode, we explore this journey, focusing on the transition from training abroad to working in the UK, giving tips to those thinking of doing the same. Smile makeovers and bonding and all this lovely stuff is great. But when you get someone out of pain and you watch their entire complexion change. With your hosts, Josh Hudson and Julia Bruin. So going right back to the start. Was being a dentist always your career goal? Uh, no, not really. <laughs> okay. <frankly. laughs> so what, how did that go about then? Well, I lacked quite a lot of focus as a, as a young'un. Um, originally, I think I wanted to be an engineer up until about 15 or 16. So quite late in the game. Yeah. Um, but I went and did some work experience uh, with uh, a couple of my family friends. And I thought, actually, this is all right, you know. So I had a quick U-turn. <laughs> a quick U-turn into dentistry. <laughs> and yeah, when applied for, well, obviously a couple of years went by, um, applied for dentistry. I got an interview at Peninsula. Um, didn't go too well. Um, I may have accidentally said, I'll see you in September at the end of the interview. And... <laughs> Well, do you know, we, we all have interviews where we kind of come up with some gaffy things. So that's very lovely of you to um, admit that. Young and, and foolish. Well, and then, you know, I think we've all had young and foolish moments. For sure. And then I kind of thought, well, I've probably got three options here. I can either go with my position that I've got at, in for biomedical sciences. Um defer entry for a year and reapply by which time I may U-turn again or try the abroad route um, and I thought well I can't do any of the European degrees in dentistry like Valencia and Prague because I'd already missed the pre-med exams for that intake and so we made some well my dad actually came to the rescue he made some phone calls to some mates he has in India. And so said, that was quite a big decision <coughs> to, to study your BDS in India when, frankly, you'd had all of your other education in the UK. I think that would be fair to say. Yep. I mean, you were very much UK-based. Yeah, born and brought up. Yeah. And, well, I, I felt at the time I didn't really have much of a choice. Um, I didn't think deferring would achieve much. And I thought, well, let's just get on with it. Um, I'll figure out how to come back. But you really wanted to do dentistry. I mean, at that stage when you had decided to go to to India to do the BDS, you you, you really had said, yes, this is for me. This is the thing that I'm going to do. Well, that's 
that's encouraging. <laughs> I did finally <laughs> cement my thoughts. And, so there wasn't an option for of engineering doing that somewhere. It was definitely. I think at that point I had exposed myself to quite a lot of dentistry. I'd done loads of work experience at that point. Um, started reading into dentistry quite deeply, and I thought, this is it. I think this this does kind of combine a bit of engineering with biology. So it kind of ticks all the boxes, really. Yeah. Um, and so, yeah, the journey began in India. So the journey began. And then part of that training, um, you did some observational placements. You came back, you did some kind of uh, experience in the UK. And obviously you don't have a, a direct comparison because you haven't done the training there and done the training here. But from the experience that you've had over the years, what do you think is the differences between the training that you had in India and the training that maybe you or somebody else would have here? I think in the UK, it's the learning is a bit more applied learning. Um, I mean, depending on the uni, I've heard that they stick you in clinics almost in second year, yeah, where you can start seeing patients face to face, communicating with them and honing those skills quite early on. Um, in India, it's a little different. It's quite, the learning is more by rote. Um, you'll be expected to learn definitions word for word. And I mean, word for word. If you're a few words out, you, you failed. And it'll come to the point where you're basically reciting textbooks. So it's very theory heavy. And I don't want to say the practical is easy or anything, but there's less gravity on the practical element they were slightly easier than the theory parts to pass. Whereas I think here it's a bit more like you'll do problem-based learning and things and you'll actually apply the knowledge you have situationally and then go and see a patient and apply that. Mm. Whereas, and the other problem that I had was communication barriers with patients. The uni was in South India and I'm North Indian. The languages have nothing to do with each other. I had no idea what they were saying. So you communicate. Wow, that must have been that, yeah, quite hard. Very challenging. <laughs> yeah. Um, I mean, the nurses were very good. They would. They had perfect English and uh, the local language, obviously. And you'd speak through them. But then you do lose. But that's quite exhausting, that whole communicating with people. I mean, you just then end up with slightly perhaps honed softer skills, perhaps that you you may have got that other people may not have got. You're probably looking at that patient, trying to work out what they're saying without them actually speaking. So yeah, I guess your, your skills may be, yeah. Yeah, yeah. That, that's true. Um, but I mean, we all know dentistry is a very heavily communication-based. Um, without, I mean, th there's a lot in speech with patients that you pick up which we never really got to experience. You never get to notice the nuances in people's communication when they're say when you, or you, when you're taking history out, for example. Um, so your observations, as Josh has said, in these placements that when you came back, I, I think must have been super valuable. This is true. I mean, you can start diagnosing caries from the wincing of eyes. <laughs> <laughs> how bad decay has got. Um, but yeah, I mean, the communication thing was an issue um, when I came back. I mean, naturally, I'm probably not the normal overseas 
graduate where, you know, I was born and brought up here. So communication wasn't too difficult. But that patient doctor communication was was challenging when I came back. So in hindsight, do you think that was the right decision to uh, decide to train abroad and get experience in India? Do you think there was experiences in India that you maybe wouldn't have got in the UK? I know you said there were some things the other way in terms of the communication things, but do you think that there was benefits uh, in different areas that you gained from training abroad? Yeah, I mean, as to whether I think I made the right choice, I'd say yes, because I'm quite happy Once where Once more I am. with meaning. <laughs> <laughs> I'd say yeah. Yes. <laughs> well, I'd say I'm in quite a good place right now. Um, and, you know, had I gone through the UK route, my path wouldn't have probably led to this exact Well, do you know, we, we're talking about journeys throughout this whole podcast, aren't we? I mean, that's why we've got you on here. Mm. You've had the most... Tumultuous. Well, well <laughs> you know, you've had quite a journey to get to the point that you're at. And, and actually, this podcast is about inspiring people. This is about educating people by other people's experiences. And so we're definitely going to be teasing out the details of that because actually I think there are many people who are going to listen to this who who may well have the similar sorts of experiences that you had aged 15 and perhaps on from there so I think let, let's start teasing them out 100% and then yeah so in terms of the the benefits of 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 the the board training now you very convincingly said that that was the right decision <laughs> what, what what were those I'm very interested because I'm 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 sure it must be to it a degree, is pretty different. It is uh, very different, different patients, different cohort, different way of thinking, different mindset. What was the what was the benefits of that? You get to experience a lot more. Um, things like the tropical diseases that you only read about in textbooks here. You're surrounded by it. You're treating patients with it. Um, I, I mean, I still remember walking around in the surgery department in third year, and just casually strolling by a guy in a ward with his entire side missing from a shark. I mean, that's the kind of exposure <laughs> you just don't get here. And I he had dental think... problems. <laughs> <laughs> no, this was a general surgery rotation in the hospital. <laughs> I don't know if the shark had dental problems after that. But, um, I mean, the, yeah, you, you do get to experience a lot more. You get a lot more clinical freedom. I think, uh, obviously, I can't speak mm. for yeah. UK unis, but I mean, doing sort of vestibuloplasties and alveoloplasties in third year and fourth year, that's kind of stuff I don't think you yeah, no, you're get not, you're to not do doing that. <laughs> No, but you get to do that under really close supervision. And I mean, that you, the clinical freedom is, is probably the biggest thing there. And, and that clinical freedom is because you think you're in India? Do you think that that's... A different patient group and therefore it's it's a, a different disease process because you're in a different place with with different um environments yes i would say you've, you've you've hit the nail on the head there um at least where i was carries rate was a lot higher than it is here um so i mean people present with very unrestorable teeth so you get very good at extractions 
Whereas okay. in the UK, I've at least in recent years, especially with the pandemic, I don't think people got to experience. But I don't think historically we used to take teeth out now, but I think now we're at the stage where we are desperate to, to keep save. teeth. I know. And I think sometimes we shouldn't be keeping those teeth. <laughs> That's true. Um, well, sorry, I, <laughs> for my of... dental colleagues who are oral surgeons out there. Um, you There's know. a lot of herodontics. Yeah, I yes. know, I know. But I mean, that's, you, you're very right. I mean, over there, you'll, you'll happily do four or 500 extractions in the year. And that's uh, a lot more. And especially in terms of, you're talking about COVID graduates and things, things that might be doing 30, yeah. 50 extractions yeah. in training. And that's extractions was just and, general and, treatment. And actually, let's not forget those extractions are slightly different. These are these are not just a little MOD that's gone wrong. This is probably decoronated teeth. Yep. This is retained, retained roots. roots. Yep. You know, this this is this is what I call high end um extraction Oral work. Surgery. Yep. Mm. And we were taking eights out left, right, and centre. Well, it's left and right. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, it's a bit like those um, back molars, which the students sometimes yes. come out with. I go, oh, yeah. As opposed to the front <laughs> molars. The front ones. <laughs> so just treatment generally, was it just extractions? Or were you doing a lot of everything more, a lot of more crowns, endos? Because, again, you know, we've got graduates now that might be doing three or four root canal treatments. Is there was a, a lot of root canal treatment going on. There was a lot of perio, um, periodontal treatment going on. Wasn't so much crown uh, based mm-hmm. there wasn't a lot of restorative work other than just basic restorations indirect wasn't massively well taught or massively In well yours. covered yeah um because there perhaps wasn't the expertise to make these um sort of appliances i think the labs were pretty good because at least with some phantom head work we got to see what would come out if they were to make a crown, but we didn't get to do much. Or maybe I was just lazy in the restorative department. I don't know. <laughs> and again, I suppose it's different patient cohorts as well. Mm. There's, uh, it's probably another aspect. And I think, so we've spoken before and you mentioned about working in rural areas during your training and how that, that has shaped and influenced your career uh, going forward. Can you tell us a little bit more about that? What what was the experience there and how do you think that's influenced where you where you are now in your daily practice now? I mean, those rural areas were really, really rural. Um, you would literally be in the middle of a forest um, with villagers in real trouble. They have absolutely no access to dentistry. I mean, these are the guys that are taking their own teeth out and they're not even mobile teeth. No anesthetic, no nothing. So we would go out on a bus for three or four hours and head way into forests. I mean, sometimes it would, I remember one particular uh, village, we were treating a bunch of um, forest army people, which was amazing, actually. Yeah. I mean, they were, they were protecting against tribes and things, and it was quite scary. We, uh, and presumably super grateful for their services. They were incredibly I mean, grateful. Um, I mean, you know, smile makeovers and bonding and all this lovely stuff is great. But when you get someone out of pain and you watch their entire complexion change from relief, that's something you don't... Oh, I don't underestimate it at all. I did many years of doing um, dental work for the homeless uh, during Christmas times. 
and I can tell you that we, we didn't do high-end dentistry. We, we either cleaned the tooth or removed the tooth. <laughs> um, but I can tell you that the joy of those, and we called them guests, we didn't call them patients, was absolutely outstanding. So um, I totally get that. I think we that that's one of the lovely things about our job, right, is actually helping people. And it doesn't matter whether they're homeless, when they're in a jungle, whether they're, you know, in an NHS practice. It doesn't matter where they are. We do have grateful patients. Absolutely. I mean, that joy is just unmatched. Um, it's not something I experience anymore, unfortunately. I mean, you still get extremely grateful patients, but that was just something else. Gives you perspective, right, on what you're what you're doing there, <laughs> and, and the, the gripes that patients might have. I think it's the same with people that do MaxFax jobs, and they talk about, you know, things being put into perspective. You know, we've got patients that's been in a car accident and they're very unwell, and then somebody complaining about a filling that's fallen off. It puts it in perspective, and it sounds like your experiences have done just that for you. And and I, I think that's probably important because we do maybe get focused on the little things when there's quite a lot of bigger things going on. Yeah. So, I mean, we're, we're talking about treating soldiers in rural forests, but let's, let's try and think back to our listeners. Think, you went abroad to study. Now, it just happened to be India, but there are lots of different pathways. Is this something that you think that people, what sort of advice would you, you know, do you think it's a good idea? Do you think there's any bits of advice you'd give somebody who is considering going down this what might be considered slightly alternative pathway? Yeah. I mean, my advice would be just embrace it. Um, it's going to be a culture shock. It's going to be completely different to even the education system you're used to. But embrace it, embrace the education, the people, the locals and the culture and everything about it. I mean, I did try and absorb myself into it as much as I could made some really good friends um, from there. And of course, these universities will be, will have a quota of international students. Make oh, friends okay. with them yeah. as well. 15% of our year were internationals. That's Generally, interesting. So were they from all over, I would imagine? Mainly from America and Canada. Because they are obviously, well, I, I presume they're trying to skip the pre-med <laughs> yeah. degree that they have to do. Um, but yeah, I mean, that's exposure you'll never get. I mean, I've, I've got loads of friends in America, Canada, Kenya, all over the place, um, who I can turn to and some of my best friends. Uh, so that's an experience that, you won't get. That's really special. And I think all of us have got, um, dental friends that we met when we were doing our training. It's that common ground, isn't it? That common experience of giving your first injection, probably to your best friend who's yeah. just sitting in the chair who's, who's never had one before either. You know, all right, okay. You know, I've, I've certainly experienced that with some of my students in the Absolutely. past. So, then, so going forward from there, so you trained abroad and then the next step was to come back to the UK and then and practice dentistry here. Mm -hmm. So I think it was 2016, you did your uh, overseas registration exam, your ORE exam. Um, and I'll be honest, I don't really know much about that at all. All that I know about it is it's difficult and it's hard to, <laughs> to do and, and to make happen. So I was just wondering for anybody like me that doesn't really know much about that, can you just explain a little bit about the process of coming here as an overseas graduate and then getting into the system, registering with a GDC, et cetera? Of course. I mean, for me, I was quite focused on coming back. That was always the end game. So I knew 
that I'm going to need to start getting pieces into place quite early on. So the first thing you need to do, and I might as well make this relatively prescriptive for anyone who wants yeah, to yeah, know definitely. the route, yeah, helpful. is when you sort of hit fourth and fifth year, you contact a company called Narik, who is basically a body in the UK that um, provides a statement of comparability between your degree and what the UK is expecting. It's and there's the- only one company that does this? Yes. All right, okay. <laughs> and it's not to say that your degree is valid here, but it's just to say that your degree is on the list of, I presume, candid- uh, of degrees that are eligible to sit the ORE at least. Then um, you need to have done 1,600 hours of clinical rotations in all the major subjects. And that'll usually be covered by your internship year, which is something you'll do over there. It's basically your foundation year, but most a lot of universities will make that compulsory. So you need to be planning in advance to record that because you need to have the, yep. the paperwork, I exactly. guess. So before you, you need start, to you know. need to be thinking about getting that together. Okay, that's yep. useful to know. And one little tip is um, before you... One, I'm sure there's, <laughs> sure there's going to be hundreds in this podcast. Well, uh, one that'll save you a lot of time is to get a, uh, a document from your deanery administrative office stating that your primary degree was taught in English. If it was, obviously. Yes. Um, that'll... It's a little known trick that'll uh, absolve you from needing to do the IELTS exam because that's that's something that um so upset- the IELTS sorry. exam is sorry. for yes. the um the English, English language as a foreign language yes uh as a second language as a, I think. sorry yes um yes so I was obviously a bit miffed about having to do that exam even the lady at the GDC said sorry I can tell you probably don't need to but you're gonna have to yeah Unless, I'm sorry, at that time, this um, document acceptance wasn't around. Luckily, at the time that I actually applied, they'd added a stipulation that if you have this document from your university, you don't have to do the test anymore. So make sure you get that. And then you apply. Um, It's an interesting process to apply. You first um, make an EGDC account, which all of us probably have, mm-hmm. to submit our CPD hours and things. And then the GDC will announce a date at which the booking will open and a specific time. And make sure you have a very fast internet connection because there will be hundreds of people trying to book that exam simultaneously and only a few seats. It's like trying to get tickets for Glastonbury and exactly. got all your devices ready to go. Exactly. So you have sort of a computer with the synchronized time in front of you. And and uh, yeah, so that's a difficult experience. But I mean, it's doable. Any other sort of practical bits of advice about doing this overseas registration exam? Yes. So you'll so essentially the exam is split into two parts. Part one is the theory. Part two is the practical. The theory exam is not too demanding. Um, another tip for anyone considering it is while you're doing sort of fourth and fifth year, start reading the Oxford Handbook of Clinical Dentistry because that will align your learning with what's expected in the UK. 
and that will gear you up quite nicely for the part one of the exam. There are courses as well that teach you the material a little bit, but it's not too difficult. Right. It's part two that's hard. Yes. So part two is split into um, four sections, OSCEs, which are just stations in which you'll do something like write a prescription or do a suture or explain to an angry patient about the wrong tooth coming out or a broken endodontic file inside the tooth. You're making that sound as though that's super easy. I I think it would be (laughs) fair to say these are quite challenging parts of the exam. They are very difficult, but when you do it three times... (laughs) (laughs) You get a bit of use to it, (laughs) okay. And then there's a diagnosis and treatment planning element. That's probably the scariest part of it um, because you'll be given a patient and you'll have a couple of examiners in the room and this patient, you have to get a history out of them then you have to, based on what you've found, request special investigations. Now, these may be radiographs, study models, uh, electronic pulp testing, anything like this. Yeah. And then you're allowed to turn the page and it will give you the results of the special investigations that you were supposed to ask for. (laughs) Okay. Which is often you can generally hear a sigh (laughs) of sadness in the room. <laughs> Somebody might realize. have forgotten the one thing. <laughs> exactly. It's important to remember that the diagnosis treatment planning element is subjective. You don't generally get the, it wrong, but it's okay if you do, as long as you can justify it. Yeah, it's that whole justification you... of the of your clinical decision. Because, yeah. yes, as you say, not, there's, there's no right and wrong sometimes with these things, is there? Exactly. It's your interpretation of the special investigations and they're more focused on your delivery to the patient. Your rapport counts for a lot. And sort of your treatment planning, even if the treatment plan is wrong, as long as you've delivered it in a coherent fashion, the patient understands yeah. and they understand why, chances are you'll do all right. Then there's a medical emergency um, element, which is a very quick part of it. It's only a 15-minute um, sort of viva. But then comes the the big guy, the phantom head exercise. Okay. That's the hard one. That is the one you'll have to spend hours and hours and days and months preparing for because it's incredibly stringent. Um, the specifications to which you have to work are very tight. And what kind of things are you, do- what are you requested to do? Yep. So the exam is essentially three or four exercises. They'll range from a class two cavity preparation or a cusp buildup with composite or a full gold crown prep or a porcelain fused to metal crown preparation or a root canal or some minor ones like take an impression. But that impression has to be perfect. <laughs> I think, I can't remember exactly, but I think it's two air bubbles. And it's no longer perfect. Right. So it's tough. You have to get it right. I mean, I spent, well, I'll be honest, it was my third attempt. Well, do you know, I hear many, many people, it is not, it is actually one of those exams, like so many dental exams, in fact, that people very rarely pass the first Mm -hmm. time. I mean, it's really quite unusual to pass the first time. I I have a friend of mine who's um, an endodontist from Brazil. 
who's done it. Mm. Um, and there ensues, you know, a similar story that what you've just described. So, yes, these are hard things. It, it's probably comforting that they <laughs> are so stringent, but in other ways, do they really need to go down that particular path mm. um, and do that much detail? Well, that's, but that's a whole other podcast, right. I think. <laughs> well, it has been genuinely useful because the number of at least plastic teeth that I've cut yes. is frankly astonishing. <laughs> yes. My bedroom at one point, I have a drawer full of plastic teeth that I'd done crown preps on. Now I find crown preps doddle. And it's all because of that exam, just well, muscle memory. Practice, yeah. A hell of a lot of practice. I mean, I, I would do six hours a day of crown preps and classroom cavities. So you need a lot of time to prepare for this. You do. I guess that's another tricky thing to think about. If people are do doing this, they need the support of people around them to be able to put this much time into the practice, I guess, is another thing to think about. Very much so. I mean, a lot of people do the exam uh, and have a job. They'll be here temporarily, maybe working as a nurse. And I mean, they you do really need the support of your spouse or whoever you're with because um, you can't really manage without doing at least four to five months of three hours a day of prepping these teeth. I mean, if you're more than 0.2 of a millimeter out, you'll fail. Yeah. It's, it's that it's cutthroat. Mm. I mean, I still remember my first attempt. Um, I was so raring to go and I looked through the, so you sit the exam and they, you have an exercise sheet of which three or four things you need to do. And I looked at it and thought, I've got this. I'm, I'm good with this. It's, I remember it was an upper left five porcelain fused to metal crown purpose. I've done this at least 600 times. I'm good. And I start cutting the tooth, made the most beautiful buckle reduction and everything. And I thought, ah, I've forgotten to take a putty index. <laughs> And that's part of the oh, exam. And obviously yes. I can't take that now that I've cut the tooth. And I, I I think I started crying at one point. I just told the examiner, they said, don't worry, just carry on. And uh, I failed. So <laughs> very cutthroat. <laughs> it yeah. is. Is it expensive as well, I would imagine? Yeah. I mean, back when I did it, I think it was three and a half grand a pop. And, and, you know, cutting plastic teeth is different than real teeth. And, and that's where you also need to get the practice in because, of course, people may think, oh, well, that's all right. I've, I've done crown preps, you know, in Brazil, in, you know, <laughs> India. I've done hundreds of them. I don't really need to practice on plastic teeth. Well, you know, those plastic teeth are very different very to, soft. you know, yeah. enamel, dentine, you know, all of those things that we're, that we're used to. So, um, Absolutely. Yeah. And, and if you touch that adjacent tooth, you can tell with yes. a plastic tooth. Yeah, it's very <laughs> obvious. Not very forgiving, are they? <laughs> Not at all. Yeah. And then, so there's the ORE exam. That's one aspect. And then there's the other aspect, which is the PVLE or the Performers List by Validation exam. Can you tell us a bit more about what that involves and, and, and any advice for somebody that's doing that aspect of, of course of coming to train uh, coming to work in the uk so the plve is uh it's not so much an exam it's basically foundation training for overseas registrants so it's generally going to be a year-long program um the difficulty with getting a place is that there's no such national recruitment or any formalized system that you have here for a uk grad you kind of have to know the practice 
they you need to make the inquiries yourself. You you basically just phone around and find out if the they're a PLVE trainer because uh, uh, you have to be registered as a PLVE trainer. You can't even just be a regular foundation dentist trainer. Um, so once you found your practice, um, you contact Health Education England. They will ask of you, I believe, three months of experience in the full scope of a GDP, which is something that came out after I did mine. And it's a little bit difficult because if you're if you've only just done your ORE, you can't obviously work on NHS patients. You're going to have to plead with a practice owner to work on private patients, which they may be all right with. They may not be. Um, it's probably better to describe them as non-NHS. Non-NHS, because yes. I think then then that that doesn't sort of I don't know. Give, no, it, it gives a slightly different picture, doesn't right. it? When we're when we're talking about the fact that they'll be doing it on private patients, I think we 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 have this sort elevate. of romantic yeah. notion that that's what the the service provision. But actually, these people are providing good, solid dental treatment. Yeah. And invariably in areas where it's not straightforward. Not at all. Um, I know quite a few people who have struggled to find a position They've uh, specifically because they can't get that three months of experience. Yeah. So you need that first before yeah. you find your trainer? Okay, yeah. You, well, you can find the trainer and then do the three months with and them. And then apply with but that's, Yeah, but then that's yet another stipulation that you'll have to put on the new uh, trainer to say, well, can I... Can I work with you? I mean, I feel as though we we really we really could talk about this in great detail, and it's fascinating hearing about your journey. But I'm just trying to sort of nail down one bit of advice that was probably given to you before coming back to the UK. Is, is there anything that you think? Oh, that that one bit of advice that person gave me before I came back to the UK was so helpful. Yes. Um, don't waste your attempts at the ORE because you only get four. Four attempts. Oh, right. Okay, that's interesting. I didn't know that it was four attempts. Yeah, if you don't make the four attempts, then there's one other pathway you can use, which is a less success, uh, a pathway with a lower success rate, which is called the LDS or the licensure in dental surgery, I think. It's a sort of side route in which you can get registered. Well, historically, we used to have LDS. Um, <laughs> for those listeners who might be listening of, of my era, um, <laughs> before BDS, there was something called LDS, and that was a license in dental surgery. So, yes. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, that was the biggest tip I got, and I really took that into account. I, did, I was tempted to rush my first attempt at part two, spoke to my dad he was quite keen for me to get on with it i said oh i'm i know i'm not ready and your dad's nothing to do with dentistry right or is he not directly no he was an ent and head and neck surgeon so he knows a bit about teeth yes (laughs) Uh, but not he's taken a few out at this time (laughs) (laughs) not a dentist no yeah so talking about your journey, I think we could split that into three different areas. So there's the the undergraduate area that we've touched on, all the details around that. And then you're coming back to the UK and doing the exams and all the different processes you had to do to then practice here. 
and you successfully got through all of that. And then now I want to touch on all the things that you're doing since then, now that you're, you're back here and working. And one of the things that is quite interesting is you were a founding member of the College of General Dentistry. Um, as a lot of our listeners will know, that was formulated back in uh, 2021. Can you tell us a bit more more about that, about your involvement and about just the college generally? Because it's a, it's a relatively new thing and I'm sure people will be interested to, to hear about that. Of course. So the College of General Dentistry, or CG Dent for short, uh, was formed uh, July 21, and it's essentially the successor college of the FGDP, which was the Faculty of General Dental Practice, which hopefully most have heard of because they basically wrote the book. I was on... going to say, there was lots of guidelines that <laughs> yes. come out of that group. So, exactly. Yeah, so I think the we've... record-keeping guidance, selection criteria for radiography, implant standards, uh, and standards for dentistry. Um, now, I got involved because the guy I did work experience with was um, vice dean at the time where I came back. And he sort of said, why don't you come along to one of our um, board uh, meetings? And I said, yeah, absolutely. Let's let's do some networking and see see what's going on. And so I was just a co-opted member of the FGDP back in 2018. And participated a bit to try to helping run some no, courses and I think and probably things. a very valued member really <laughs> because just of all of the experience that Josh has just described I mean I think you know we want to include everybody in these um decision makings at these colleges and actually you were probably an extremely valued member <laughs> and so. continue to be <laughs> so I worked my way up to sort of lead the education side of the FGDP before it disbanded um, so we'd run the divisional day, which is basically for the foundation dentists in the West Midlands, um, all hundred of them. Uh, we'd sort of hire the venue, get the speaker, get that going and, you know, organize the courses and educational events. So then in 2021, the college, um, well, the, the members of the FGDP decided to disband from the Royal College of Surgeons um, to create the College of General Dentistry. It's essentially something similar to what the FGDP was in that all the guidance has come across to the CG Dent now. It's all rebranded. But it's more that the college is a sort of, it, it's a body with a bit more autonomy than the FGDP had. Do you think it's a bit more inclusive too? I Certainly from an outsider um, who doesn't know a great deal about the college, I feel as though it's a it's a group that is really mindful that there are other people who are providing dental services who want to be included in these projects. Thank you for saying that, because that's basically the key message of the college. It is not just for dentists. By all means, it's not just for dentists. It's... I think they still need to work on it, but yes. I, <laughs> I, but I'm, I, I'm prepared to sort of say, I, I think from an outsider, it does look as though they're embracing that. Yeah, I mean... Uh, the pilots for membership schemes and things are being aimed at dentists just because that's a well-trodden path already. But the whole college is basically being rolled out to therapists, hygienists, technicians, nurses, practice managers, everyone. And So I think what you're really trying to say is that there are hundreds and thousands of members 
that could be part of this college. Yes, absolutely. <laughs> and I mean, it, it's basically to give everybody a platform for recognition. Um, I mean, one of my best friends is a hygienist and she outranks the hell out of me in the college. She's an associate fellow and I'm, I'm just a member. And that kind of recognition. We never use the word just in this <laughs> yeah. podcast. We've, we've said that with almost every guest and, and it's a word that's banned on this podcast. We don't use the word just in front of anything. So, no, I, I'm sure that your lovely friend, the hygienist, because there are some lovely hygienists out there, um, I, I think is. <laughs> well, I think I, she probably feels the same way about her lovely dentist friend. One would only hope. <laughs> But, I mean, that's the key. I mean, it's providing recognition to those members of the dental team that deserve it. I mean, she's done so much outside of um, dental hygiene, and there was no formal recognition of any of it. Um, this actually gives a sort of... I, I know people don't like to be labelled or anything, but, I mean, that is a platform that she's reached that she can, you know, wear proudly, and she'll be on to fellowship before me, which is quite astonishing. Um, I mean, the college, what it's trying to set up at the moment is um, something called the Certified Membership Scheme, of which I'm part of the pilot. And that is the entire body and the ethos of the college. It's to try and guide young dentists um, through a a pathway, a predictable pathway. Because, you know, uh, when you come out of uni, you see courses left, right and centre, especially on Instagram and things. You think, I'll just go with what my mates are doing. And it may not be what you actually want to do or it may not be the best thing for you. Yeah. So this, so the college will essentially assign you a facilitator who's very experienced will usually be someone like a training program director or an educational supervisor who will meet with you quarterly and kind of not push you in any direction, but they'll, they'll feedback from you and kind of guide you and signpost you in the right directions. And then if you start a postgraduate course, you will do the course. They'll meet with you at the next uh, meeting and, uh, you know, you, you, present them a reflective log of how what you've learned in the course is actually applied to your daily work. And so it kind of keeps you in line with like a quite a focused yeah, trajectory. Focus. Um, so yeah, that's, that's the big thing. And it's only just rolling out now. It hasn't been fully announced yet, but um, that, that'll be coming. That's very interesting. And I think uh, a lot of what we're doing on this podcast is trying to promote the whole team and, and trying to uh, recognize different people within the profession that have done different things. So it's great to hear that the the, the college is, is also embracing that. And I'm sure all our listeners can go on the website and, and find more information about that um, if they need to. Absolutely. So we've talked about a whole host of different things that you've done up until the, this point. Um and what I'd be interested to hear about is is what does what does the future hold? Where where are you going from, from here? Um, well, in the immediate future, um, I'm looking into practice ownership. Exciting, or at least becoming a principal. That's that's the fun one that's about to unravel. Fun is that a, a, <laughs> the word that you would immediately <laughs> think of? That's 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 not exciting. necessarily the first. Yeah. Exciting, excited with trepidation. 
but uh, yeah, I mean, I, I work at the practice, so it's not like I'm taking over some unknown beast. I uh, I know how the place works now. I've been there for quite a few months, and I think it it'll yeah it'll be an enjoyable journey. So this this sounds like a wonderful way to end, really. I mean, you've you've described your journey beautifully, and I think wow to then end up being practice owner and principal that's that really is inspiring isn't it it is and i'm sure you've, there's a huge amount of advice and top tips there that anybody thinking of doing any aspects of your pathway will be very uh, grateful to hear but also for everybody else like i said before it's not something that i necessarily knew that much about and i think it's useful for everybody to really understand especially if they've got colleagues that have come through this pathway what what the process is and i how was going to say i think it's, it's nice to, to have an idea about what people have gone through in order to get to point x absolutely so thank you so much for coming in and sharing your story thank you for joining us pleasure we hope you have enjoyed listening to this episode we would love to hear your suggestions for future guests remember to follow us on social media using hashtag the eastman dental podcast and if you like what you hear please rate share subscribe and listen out for future episodes (laughs) 